just so proud of a man. I'm Tommy Sounds. This is Year Zero. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking to a man I am proud to call my friend, David Thibodeau. David Thibodeau is a survivor of the Waco siege in 1993. And with the anniversary on April 19th, I thought it was only appropriate to have him on the show to talk about his thoughts on Waco and a little bit about what's going on today. But first, as always, for all your graphic design needs, go to ryanbunting.com. Ryan Bunting is the gentleman who designed mine and Pete Quinones podcast logos. Ryan Bunting is a great graphic designer, a great libertarian, and he will work with you on whatever you want to see done. That's ryanbunting.com. As always, thank you, Tom Burton, for the music. Enjoy the show. All right. Here with David Thibodeau. How are you doing, sir? Good, man. Very good tonight. That's good, man. Energized. Energized. Ugh. You got to drink that monster before you jump on. Exactly what I did, dude. There's <laughs> <laughs> the purple one. They taste the best. Sugar-free, of course. I've never had one of those. I've had the blue one and the green one. Try not to drink too many of them, though. They make me jittery. I had to go and do some errands today, and it's just like, you know, I wear out, so I'll take one then. Yeah. Feeling good now. Well, that's good. So, if anybody doesn't know, David Thibodeau is a survivor of the Waco siege in 1993, and I thought I would have him on, and what a perfect time to have you on, because I just saw Vice News released ah. a short, probably... 18 minute episode uh it was an interview that they did with uh bryce sage one of the uh byron byron sage is it byron this is byron sage i am your fbi negotiator i will be here throughout the endeavor and we wish that you would just come out come out with your hands up and we can move this into the courts byron said yeah that's Byron. yeah he managed to choke out some tears and all kinds of good stuff. Yeah, he's saying the same stuff he's been saying for years. And I just, uh, I just, you know, I really wonder about the guy. There's a couple of things. Well, you know, I'm, he and his friend Cliff Van Zandt have called me a liar on national television before. And I basically said, you're calling me a liar after the 51 days where you guys continuously lied to the American public one day after another, after another, after another about who we were and what was really going on. Really? So, you know, these people call me a liar. It's just, it, I find it very offensive. Uh, the thing with Byron that's interesting is like, I, I think Byron is, you know, I think Byron is a true fed through and through. I mean, this guy is, you know, 100%. I think there's a part of me that think he, he really believes everything he's saying. And I think you can't, listen, you can't call Mount Carmel a mass suicide without concentrating and thinking about the infrared video that shows shooters from the, near the tanks shooting into the back of the boat. Right. 
the FBI claimed that's sunlight reflection. They claim that did not happen. Well, it's on your infrared tape. You guys had a, had a plane flying above Mount Carmel with an infrared camera. You took that tape. You know damn well it's fully automatic weapons fire. It looks the same as if you take fully automatic weapons fire from Somalia or Iraq, anywhere where you have an infrared, when you're showing full, what full auto looks like, it looks the exact same. That is not sunlight reflections. So again, you're all, you know, you're trying to use, you're trying to deny your own technology that, that, that you used to show that the fires were started at three different places that in, in turn blaming the people inside for setting the fire. Right. And here's, you know, the whole point is this. You, he, he always says the same stuff. He says, someone brought a dog out, but they couldn't bring their kids out. And it's, you know, it's a powerful soundbite, but the, when he's saying that, they don't give a chance for anyone that was inside to, to, to rebut that. And, you know, the, the truth is the building was so destroyed by the, by the veracity of the tank assault. The tanks went all the way in through the building to the concrete structure and put a massive amount of CS gas in where the kids were, a massive amount. You know, to the point where these kids were, many of them were anesthetized. They died of uh, CS gas poisoning. You know, I think they died of the gas before the fire even began from the amount of gas they put in those that little room. Right. And then there's, why didn't the mothers grab their kids and come out? What are you coming out to? If you're coming out to the back, you're being shot down. So... Point one, you can't call it a mass suicide if you're shooting people that are trying to escape the building. That's a mass homicide. Mm -hmm. It's not a suicide. Now, I believe that some people were trapped in the building and they may have taken their own lives. I'm not, I'm not denying that happened right. according to the autopsy reports. That's what it, look, what it looks like. But there are other, other of the bodies that, had, that were autopsied that showed bullet, people that had bullet wounds in the center of the head and the center of the chest. And that's not how you take your own life. That's how... It's more indicative of a uh, homicide than a suicide, is my point. Right. So, you know, for him to say, you know, they, he, someone brought a dog out, which was Clive Doyle. There was a dog that was staying with the group. And while the place was, you know, the smoke was filling, Clive tried to throw the dog out. The dog kept coming back because it was our dog. The dog loved us. He didn't want to be, you know, he wanted to be with his family. Mm -hmm. Clive finally brought the dog out. Byron is implying that dog that Clive didn't care enough to to get his own daughter out. Right. But the matter is you couldn't get down the hall. You couldn't get to the concrete structure from the chapel area. They had cut the building off when the tanks went in and destroyed walls, floors, uh, the, uh, the, the stairs that led up into the building, uh, mm -hmm. broke windows, made huge holes. I mean, you know, they, they just did so much damage to the building. Nobody could get to the uh, after ten, nobody could get to the other side of the building up around ten thirty. Yeah, it's not, well, fair. not a fair well, assessment. Yeah, no, and and I I understand that, and I I listened to what he said, and none of it, very little of it, if any of it, rings very true. Um, but let's back up a little bit because I what I I have kind of a an interesting tie to the entire Waco story, and not that I knew anybody that was part of the church but my mom went to high school with one of the atf agents actually the first atf agent that was killed so and um she's emailed you about that and y'all have talked about that i've talked to you in person about this but i was 
it was 93. It was early 93. So I was about 12 years old. We were living in Dallas at the time. I remember watching it on television. It, it's one of the first major news stories I remember, like watching on television in real time as it was happening every evening, watching the evening news with my parents. And I remember that the the feeling was that the the members of the church were evil and there was very little said about the children from what i remember but i i moved to waco when i was i guess i was about 19 when i moved to yeah. waco and i lived there for about a year i worked at a company called time manufacturing off of industrial boulevard um, and, uh, I talked to some of the guys there about, about the, the siege, about Mount Carmel, about the people, uh, specifically about David Koresh, cause he was the most well-known person out of the entire siege. So everybody I spoke with said they had met him at one point or another. He was one of the nicest guys in the world that they had ever met completely polite. And all he ever did was invite them to church. So let's talk a little bit about the, the, the leading up to the, the siege. And let's talk about who David Koresh actually was. Okay. You know, I mean, David was, was a guy that claimed that he had a vision. You know, he claimed that he had a mission and that he understood something about the scripture that that others didn't, something called the seven seals. And apparently most of his life when he was Vernon Wayne Howell, his given name, uh, he was a seeker, he was seeking, he was always reading the book. If you talk to his stepbrother, Roger, Roger says he was always reading the Bible or Ellen G. White's writing. He was, uh, I guess, initiated in the Seventh-day Adventist church, young, as far as I can tell. And that as he kind of got older, he started to just continue to seek. He would read Alan G. White's writings and the scripture for himself. Roger said Roger would go to work and um, David would be reading in, at his table. Roger would come back from work. He'd still be at the same spot reading. So it appeared that David, you know, spent a lot of time with the word. Mm. And so... He wanted to know one point he was always seeking, like, you know, he, he, he told stories that he would always go, he would always go to, to uh, graveyards to talk to God and just be like, you know, where are my people that I need to meet? What's, you know, I, I want to know you. He would always, that, that was the thing with him. And so, you know, so he's always searching and he's always trying to get God to acknowledge him, I guess. And he asked one of, the older women who lived at Mount Carmel, no, I'm sorry, uh, that, that were at his church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, I think in Texas, I think it was Tyler, Texas. Okay. Either that or he was living in Dallas. I'd have to, I'd have to uh, brush up a little bit. But basically, she said that, uh, oh, I hear that there is a prophet. He, he said to this old lady, how come there are no prophets anymore? I want to, you know, I would like to know a prophet of God. And she said, I hear there's a prophet in Waco. As soon as he found out, he went to Waco to find her. And of course, that was Lois Roden, Ben Roden's wife, who after Ben died, became uh, the prophet of Mount Carmel. Mm -hmm. 
the Seventh-day Adventist group or the offshoot, the Branch Davidians, they were an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists that lived out there, meant some for like Perry Jones, the Jones family, most of all of their lives, really, you know, since the 50s or 60s, they had been out there. You know, they were wondering about, there was a progressive truth at Mount Carmel. In other words, Ben Roden talked to someone that would come, Lois Roden talked to someone that would come, someone who would be able to uh, reveal the seals or someone who would be able to have the, what they, the living truth or, or, the, or a new light, if you will. And see, every leader at Mount Carmel believed that they had, they were given a light to give to the world. They had a specific message. In Lois's case, she was shown the Holy Spirit feminine, the Proverbs 8 and 9. Um, and that, you know, that's something that when, when, when you look into the Hebrew, it's really interesting. It's a lot of the Hebrew words. Every time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Hebrew, it's in the feminine form. Every word in Hebrew is uh, masculine, feminine, or neutral. And so the Holy Spirit is always feminine. You read Proverbs 8 and 9, it sounds like there's a woman, the wisdom of God speaking to man, saying that she was with God when he created the heavens and the earth, always by his side as one with him. Very interesting scripture. So Lois taught that. And that was a very new way of looking at things for you know people with any kind of Christian or, you know, Catholic or Methodist background or, or Seventh-day Adventist for that matter. And so, you know, she went around the, uh, America speaking speaking that truth, and that was the thing. And so when, when David or Vernon showed up at Mount Carmel, he started to serve Lois, do whatever she wanted around the place, and started to get studies. He ended up marrying uh, Rachel, Perry Jones's daughter, and they went to Israel. When he was in Israel, he claimed that God gave him a vision and that's when he came back and started teaching these seven seals. So it was something that if you talk to the older people that were there, that's what's really fascinating about the whole thing to me. If you talk to some of the older people, they're like, this guy stuttered. He you know, had an understanding of scripture, but he was certainly no gifted teacher. And until he came back from Israel, all of a sudden he starts teaching. And he starts going into a depth of scripture that the people that were there had been looking for, built off their foundation. But he took it further. He took it light years further. And so you know, those stories from kind of the old people that were around him were really fascinating to me. Um, how you, you know, how we started this discussion, you were talk, talking about the people that you spoke to in Waco. As far as I know, from the people that had met David in Waco, he was very much that, you know, he's just a, an average, uh, you know, uh, Southern guy. Mm -hmm. He had many friends in town. He went to the bar and had beers with people and that kind of thing. And, I, I know of being around him early, the year that I was there, I, I'm almost solidly. There were times when he would talk to musicians. One guy said that he had, his bass was stolen. David Crash went bottom of bass. You know, he, I, I saw him on several, several occasions do things for people. And, you know, nothing expected in return. He always claimed that he had a truth to give, and if people were willing, he would be willing to show it. But, he, you know, he wasn't really pushy with it but he was confident in his ability and he was confident in his vision. And he was going to try to teach the Bible to as many people as he possibly could who would listen. Yeah. And, well, and I, I specifically remember talking to one guy and um, I, I, I can't for the life of me remember his name. I can see his face. I mean, we're talking, I don't know, I'm, I'm almost 42 now. So we're talking 
over 20 years ago that that I had these conversations with these people. But there was this one gentleman that that worked with me. Um, he was a he was a painter. And um, he he specifically told me he's like he was an extremely nice guy, very charismatic, very sweet guy, easy to get along with um, and all he he would invite me to church and I would go every once in a while you know and it was just just a normal average you know Christian evangelical like is the way he came across to a lot of people and yeah. I don't think people ever get that image they don't, don't they don't ever see that because whenever I was told that I was shocked I was like really he was just a normal guy you know because we heard for so long that he was a cult leader and he was, you know, out of his mind and he was abusive and controlling and manipulative. And, and so when you hear about, you know, regular people that met him that weren't involved in the church that were like, no, he was just a normal guy. He was easy to talk to. He's a really nice guy. It, 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 it kind of sheds a different light on, on the entire subject. Um, when, were, when were y'all aware, I guess it was when every, uh, David got the call from, uh, the gun shop in Hewitt that y'all yep. were aware that there was some investigation, someone was looking into you. Yeah. I can't remember exactly when that was, I think that was before the guys moved in across the street, but, uh, yeah, Henry McMahon, who owned, uh, the uh, Hewitt handguns had worked with David. He, he considered David to be his preacher actually and came out on uh, Saturdays and had studies with us and things like that, you know, but Henry was uh, kind of showed David and some of the younger guys who went to the gun shows, the ropes, how the business works, if you will. And so they started, you know, buying and selling guns. They laid had all the yellow sheets and all the firearms. Yeah. Well, when he got raided, uh, you know, Henry called David and said, I got the ATF here. They're raiding me and they're asking a lot of questions about you. And he said, put them on, Henry. You know, I'll talk to them. They come out, check out any of the yellow sheets they want. And, you know, they chose not to go that route. They didn't want to talk to David. They basically told Henry to hang the phone up. So, that, you know, the whole thing, it, told, it, it was so unnecessary. It so could have been avoided. It's just the government out of control. It really, it truly was. truly is. It truly was. At the, it's just pride and arrogance that it's ultimate. And that's, you know, like... People say, how do you view, like, spiritually? Uh, spiritually, I, I view it very, I don't like to get into black and white because it's so, you know, it's almost too easy. <laughs> um, but, you know, usually things are in a shade of gray. But, you know, my point is the way the ATF and the FBI, especially, they both act, I shouldn't say especially, the ATF were incredibly arrogant. And then when the FBI took over, the people on the ground, the guys on the ground were incredibly arrogant as well. And I say that because they would moon us, they would give us the finger, their tanks would run over Peter Jen's grave over and over again. They would they did it purposely. To me, that's that's ultimate arrogance. And scripturally, if you break it down, it says that the people that fight against the people of God or the people that have the message of God will be proud and arrogant, haughty, very haughty. And the people of God will be more of like, you know, the sheep, if you will, or very humble, more humble. What, what people would call naive, almost, if you will. And, you know, to a sense, uh, many of the people in Mount Carmel, you know, were naive. They lived in the scripture. Uh, they lived in a book that's 2,000, thousands of years old. 
and that was the world they lived in every day. Uh, almost a study every night. Uh, they kept the daily at, at, at nine and three where you reflect on God, have a little study. You know, so these people, it was 100%. You know, the people in Mount Carmel were 100%. What does the scripture say were there? And the FBI chose, when they took over the ATF investigation, well, after the raid, when they took over, they chose to look at these people as criminals. David Koresh is the chief criminal. And that was unfortunate. That was the wrong way to look at it. They should have looked at these people as Bible believers, at least tried to speak their language. They never did. They had resources. See, they knew what they were doing. The FBI had resources. Uh, James Tabor, Phil Ardell, they had theologians who wanted to speak David's language. They didn't allow that. If you look at the, uh, the, the FBI has a, a crisis, uh, a, a book of what to do in a crisis situation, a rule book, if you will. Uh, they, have, they have violated 11 of their own principles, 11 rules of what not to do in a crisis situation if you want people to come out. So instead of following their own rule book, they violated over 11 different rules during the course of the 51 days. If you want people to come out, why would you do that? Why, why would you take your own rule book, which I would imagine comes from years of, of, of tests, testimonies, and psychological profiles on people? Why, why would you not use the wisdom that you've put together, right? That's your job. Mm-hmm. So when Byron Sage, you know, wants to say <clears throat> that it was an impossible situation, no, it wasn't. You made it. The FBI made it an impossible situation. Right. The ATF made it an impossible situation. It was the whole thing. All you had to do was get David Crash when he jogged in front of their house, or get David Crash when he went shooting with them at their firing at a firing range, a public firing range, two miles away from Mount Carmel. Right. He and two agents went and shot at a firing range. That's the guy you're scared of. That's the guy that you claim to Congress and you claim to the, the to the uh, to the Texas Rangers that never came out of his house. They said to Congress, we couldn't get David when he came out of his house because he never left. That's crazy. And that's a blatant lie. And frankly, they should go to jail for perjury for that. That's perjuring yourself in front of Congress. But they don't go to jail. They get raises and promotions for doing a piss poor job for getting everyone killed. Most of the agents in Waco got raises and promotions. That bill, yeah. you know, you can't. There's nobody within the sound of my voice who can screw up at their job ultimately and then lie to their boss about it and get a freaking raise. No, you get fired. Yeah. And any job other than being a federal agent where you get a promotion for it, my friends. It's absolutely, it's ridiculous. It's, you know, I've been talking about it for years. It just, it makes me crazy that the wrong people were put on trial. Well, and wait. I would, I would almost say that, you know, <clears throat> I know I, I, I would listen to your Keith Knight interview earlier. And, and you had mentioned that, that you, it drives you nuts that you continue for 25 years. You've been hitting this and hammering it and hammering it and hammering it. And it really didn't seem like you're making any progress, but I would say if they feel it's necessary to continue to propagandize the American people on this subject, then you are making progress. You're winning. They wouldn't have to propagandize the American people if everybody believed them, Yeah, you know? So I'm ashamed of vice for that. 
I love Vice. I think Vice is doing something for this generation that ABC, CBS, and NBC have never done. And they're going to places and they're getting the truth and they're getting a different perspective for a younger generation. And I really expected more, that to, uh, more of them. Now, I understand it's a show called I Was There and they got the perspective of Byron Sage. Of course, he's going to tell his story. Mm. But I'm just surprised. I really, I don't know, man, I expected more. Well, you have to remember a lot of these corporate media organizations are experiencing severe financial difficulty and they need the government on their side. And I heard the other day that Vice is damn near ready to shut down. They're laying off a lot of people right now. So they need that government money, you know? So what are they going to do? They're going to placate the people that are going to help them financially, help them keep their doors open. That makes, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing I I try to mention every time I give a talk and why stop now, right? (laughs) We got to remember about the, the meat. Now, listen, you got the extreme right and you got the extreme left politically in this country. And they're both wrong. <laughs> if you're too extreme in any way, there's something you're not seeing. I'm telling you, there, there's, there are things that you are wrong about, extreme right and extreme left. And you just refuse to face it because you hate the other side so much. And we got to stop thinking as, as one side against the other. We got to start thinking like Americans and say, look, there's probably truth in the center here. You know, maybe my, my thoughts are a little radical and I, I need to come to the center. You know, I brought all this up because every single, and that's, it can be everything from CNBC, CNBC, CNBC to Fox News and everything in between, all media organizations, all newspapers, all magazines, everything online, everything you watch on television, everything you watch on HBO, everything that you see and, and disseminate during the course of a day is controlled by four companies. All media is controlled by four companies. Four companies, that's it. Yeah. So whoever the CEOs are and the, the boards of those four companies literally dissect and dictate how, how they're going to present things to you and how you're going to think. They give you both sides of the argument, my friends. If you think you're digging deep and going on both sides, they're still giving you both sides of the argument. So, you know, that's it. That That's it. I've just tried to tell my experience um, bit by bit to people. And there was a time that I was becoming maybe politically skewed one way or the other, especially early on. Because what's frustrating is when you have a story and no one wants to hear it. Mm-hmm. And you're wondering why no one wants to hear your story because you were there. And because you've been so demonized, literally no one wants you on their show. No one wants to talk to you. And then all of a sudden, <clears throat> a guy comes up and says, hey, you know, our group would love to, for you to speak. We got a gun club in Ohio. Why don't you come on up and speak to our group? And of course, you know, it's a Republican, uh, NPR, not NPR, uh, NRA loving mm-hmm. group of constitutionalist individuals, Americans. Mm-hmm. And those are the only people that even wanted to hear what I had to say was the right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was raised <clears throat> very kind of liberal in a liberal democratic family. Okay. Um, I didn't let that, I didn't care. I mean, I wasn't, I don't explain this. I, I, I wasn't really into politics. I was a musician. I just wanted to play drums. I wanted to have a good time. A long haired hippie kid, you know, just wanted to play in a band and 
tour the world. That's all I wanted to do was one rock and roll tour. And I'd have been happy. <laughs> I ended up playing uh, playing in bands and playing Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights all over, you know, uh, Maine and L.A. and all over the place. So I had a good, you know, I had a good run. I had a good time. I, I got to play for people. And that's how I spent pretty much the last 20 years of my life. And I can't complain, you know. Um, but, you know, those there's just, I think what happened was, I had to open my mind when the only people that wanted to hear what I had to say were people that I think instinctively I disagreed with. And I started to find many similarities. And I started to see these people really care about the Constitution. They care about Waco. They care about what happened. There. And that, that was amazing to me. Mm. And I had to reread the Constitution and under, understand what that, what that meant, what the Constitution meant, what the sacrifice of the forefathers meant. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, I see hypocrisy on both sides. You know, I think the right is always claiming to be, you know, Christian. And then I'm wondering why there are so many homeless. And then there's no money when it comes to the political side of it for, um, to help our vets or to help the homelessness problem or to help with health care and help mm -hmm. with mental care. This country needs a therapist. Everybody in this country could use the therapist. <laughs> and part of the homelessness problem and the drug addiction problem comes from mental health, I, I personally believe. And you don't even have to be an extreme mental health case or individual. You could have had things happen to you when you were a child that is affecting you and you don't even understand why you behave the way you do or why you're seeking out for drugs as an escape from your pain. You know, there's many reasons why people become addicted. And instead of helping them, we criminalize them and throw them in jail. So, you know, I don't know what the solution is. You know, people say communism or people say socialism. And I say, how about humanitarianism? How about just helping out your fellow countrymen? And that includes the veterans who have fought for you during the course of the last couple of wars. They come back all screwed up in the head from the shit they've had to do and the stuff they've had to see. And it's just like, hey, welcome home. You know, that's it. I guess the contrast is that at least they're not being spit at, like during the Vietnam era, when our veterans came home and were spit at and called baby killers. And it's like, do you imagine serving your country and having to come home to that? Right. What's my point? My point is, I think there should be a happy medium. Maybe we build one less B-2 bomber, one less stealth bomber, and take that money and Put it into some programs for to for, for at least mental health and health care for our citizens. We're the richest nation on the face of the earth. Why can't we make that happen? And yet we never seem to be able to do that politically. Well, so, and you know, I've heard it said that with the war on drugs, there's a mini Waco every day in this country. When when you look at like SWAT raids and no knock raids on you know on people's homes and then you listen to some of the rhetoric that's being spewed this year and um you know people american citizens you know being labeled as insurrectionists or domestic terrorists just because of their belief system and so i think it is just it's more important now that that you get your message out and that you get your story out because because of the way that the division is going, it, it, it almost seems inevitable 
that there's going to be another, you know, situation like a Waco. And I, I can't say when, I can't say how, I don't, I don't know where, but it just feels like it, it's building up to that. And you're going to have a portion of the country cheering for it from an ideological standpoint. Mm. You know, and that's, that's terrifying to me, you know, because yeah. th this, I mean, if you, if you go back to the reasoning, you know, behind the, the initial siege, this, this all had to do with gun rights and gun rights are still being attacked constantly, you know, and, yeah. um, you, you have States like Texas, you have States like, um, Arizona coming up with legislation to make their States second amendment, um, sanctuary States, you know, yeah, yeah. And no longer following federal regulation, but that's not going to stop the feds from trying to come in and, and knock out, you know, the three percenters or the John Brown gun club or, or whoever else that, you know, really? is, is acting, interacting with the gun community. Yeah. No, it's not going to stop them at all. It's going to make it it's, it's going to make them double down. It's the same, the same shit in Waco. It's the pride and the arrogance in the federal government. Right. And, and we've, yeah, you know, okay. I'm going to get into it. Screw it. You want to get into it? Let's get into it. Let's get into it. We saw, let's get into it. We we saw this recently. it we, we, we've had enough foreplay. Let's get into it. We're flirting with disaster now, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I so, saw them live when I was in the yeah. military. Yeah. Gotcha. Good, good song, good band. Yeah. So January 6th, you know, a bunch of people go to protest what they claim was the presidency being stolen. And, you know, the only thing I want to say about that is I remember uh, Gore, Gore the, the, the Gore Bush debacle mm -hmm. and how if they're ever seen in my in the, in the course of my life that there was a stolen election it would have been back then because here's here's Bush winning and the whole vote comes down to the state of Florida where George Bush's brother Jeb is the governor of. so let's think about that for a minute there's the, the, the hanging chads what a coincidence what an amazing coincidence that the deciding state is Florida where where the, the person running for president's brother is the governor, okay? So at that, it, okay, to me, just as kind of, a, a, just as a musician dude, I was like, okay, they're stealing the election. They're, they're taking it from Florida. I said they stole the election. And I remember the stickers that the Republicans had of a baby with, with a, a, baby, a baby crying with a pacifier, like right there, we're getting ready to get put in his mouth. And they said the Democrats. Like the Democrats were little babies crying because, you know, uh, Bush got elected. So, okay, now, now, yet Gore still conceded. He backed out. They, he did the proper thing, took it to court to the legal system. Mm -hmm. Found that, you know, there wasn't enough evidence to say, okay, you're not the president. So he did the right thing and said, you know, Bush wins. I wish that the Republicans would have done the same thing here with Trump losing. The bottom, you can say the election, the election wasn't stolen, man. Listen, 
it's just it's how it is. It's 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 how this country runs. If it was stolen, I haven't seen the evidence, and I've been looking. Four judges all claim that the election wasn't stolen. There's no evidence of that. So, what's the point? What? How far do you go? Well, you go to the point where a bunch of people show up in Washington, and what should have been a peaceful protest turns into what it turned into, and, and people marching against the Capitol, some Capitol police dying. Now, imagine how much worse that would have been if Trump actually would have showed up and went shoulder to shoulder to them as Congress, as he claimed he was going to. Right. But he did go back to the White House again, lying to his own people and not showing up to do what he said he was going to do. So how much worse would it have been? And what's my whole point? My whole point is we have a system in place, and we may not like it if the other guy wins. But you can't say all the time that everything is a lie and everything is a cover-up. There are many things that are covered up, but not everything. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. Okay. So... January 6th occurs, and we have a new president. It's Biden, of course. I saw the testimony of some of the people that were in the, con the in Congress, how scared they were. You could see the pictures of them hiding, thinking they could have died. And, they, and some of them could have. I don't know what would have happened had they found Pence or found Pelosi. They may have hung Pelosi. I just, I, I, I don't know. A mob is, is capable of anything. There's nothing worse than the spirit of like-minded people on a course of destruction. That's mm -hmm. always been a fear of everyone through the course of history. Mm -hmm. Mobs are how terrible, terrible can, things. And terrible can I ask things. you, I want, I, I got to ask you one question about this though. Can I just finish my point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, 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 go ahead. Okay. So here's, here's the people in Congress are scared. They're terrified. They think they're going to die. And yet, they live through it. The whole thing is suppressed. Everyone goes home after the course of time. Some people are killed. Yes, absolutely. What is surprising to me is the attitude the Democrats had after. Even though they were afraid for their lives that it could have ended up worse than it did, right? You would think that some people in the Democratic Party would see what happened and say, oh, Maybe we need to talk better to these people. Maybe we need to figure out why these people are so angry they're showing up and trying to take over Congress. Maybe maybe there needs to be more communication as opposed to this incredible divisiveness. And instead of trying to <clears throat> build a bridge, they're doubling down. So I think that the Democrats are, and by no means am I a political analyst of any kind, but it looks to me like they're just making the situation worse. Mm. What do you, what what are what are, what, are, what were you going to say? Oh, I, I just it, it, I I just got to be curious. I I watch every time I watch R Waco Rules of Engagement. Yeah. I I hate Chuck Schumer more. And so uh, imagining that he was one of the people cowered on the floor af afraid for his life gives me kind of a giddy feeling. Like I, you got yeah, I mean, come on, just a little bit, right? I'm no fan of Schumer at all. So yeah, <laughs> you know that's my point. You know, I make these points, and people think that I've been called a traitor. I've been called all kinds of stuff now, and it's just like, listen, I I kind of understand both sides, right? And I a little sympathy for 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 both sides. Mm -hmm. I do not. Yeah, you're right. I don't like Schumer, 
He was a piece of garbage. Oh, Biden was, was horrible during y'all's during the testimony too. Yeah, I saw that too. I saw that as well. Believe me, I'm I'm well aware of that. And well, you were there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't remember Biden from that though. I remember Schumer. Oh, Biden. I, I don't. I remember recently watching the videos of Biden. Oh, okay. But to me, it was other people. You know, it was people like, oh, there was Conyers who who said he made some. He made the. He was originally surprised at the lack of constitutionality of Waco. And then he turned around, you know, all his little congressman buddies basically said, you got to get on board with us. And then they were against Waco. There was the uh, Jewish gentleman, I like to remember his name, Lantos, who was totally pro-government. And, you know, this is a guy that should understand what the Constitution means and what the freedoms and rights of people are. But they have a very strict way of viewing things, you know, and it's like I said, it's not black and white, man. It's very, uh, what happened to Waco was very, very complicated. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what you want to say. They, they covered up, they covered up the crimes of the, what the, the government did. And they did it. There's a, I have a, a saying that I like to repeat. That's a senator named uh, Henry Clay in the 1800s said, the devices of power and its minions are the same in all countries and in all ages. It marks its victim and denounces it, exciting the public hatred to conceal its own abuses and encroachments. I, I got to say, I watched um, I watched um, a book signing you did earlier to, earlier today from 1999, and I am impressed that even in 1999 you were you were reciting that. Yeah, yeah, it, and. And it was, it's one of those things you read and it's like, it's tattooed on the inside of my head. It's just, that's what Waco was. That's exactly, he summed it up a hundred years before, 200 years before, a hundred and something years before exactly what happened. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, perfect. It was perfect. Well, and it's happened so many times in, in the United States. I mean, you look at, you know, you, you have, um, there was Black Wall Street in Tulsa. There was the bombing in Philadelphia when they bombed a, a damn subdivision, Ooh. you know? I mean, there's all these times in American history that things like this have happened. And, and so to have a spokesman alive today saying, you know, Ruby Ridge was horrible. And you've quoted that several times um, in the past. But but back to back to when y'all realized what was happening. So so those af, after you after David got the call from the Hewitt gun shop, then the the agents moved in across the street, right? Did were y'all aware of almost immediately that these were agents, or did it take some time? When, when did y'all figure out what was going on there? I personally, right away, knew that there were some, some kind of government agent, federal agency. That, their story didn't make sense. It didn't look right. Four guys moving in of all the places across the street from us where there's literally maybe two or three farmhouses on the entire street, double A ranch road. Right. Yeah. And for the listeners that haven't been there, this this area is not in Waco. It's outside of Waco. It's secluded. It's, it's 
off by itself. I mean, I live on, I live on nine acres, but if you come off of my property, you're on a highway. This isn't even on a highway. Y'all are down a dirt road, basically out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, and just have your own little, your own little space. You, you weren't hurting anybody. It was almost like a little commune. It was. Yeah. I, you know, it was, when I first moved there, what was really funny about the properties, there were 10 little houses in a row going down the road. And that was, you know, there was the main house where they had the cafeteria and the chapel. And then, you know, people lived in the little houses. And my first impression was, oh my God, that's the cultiest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and so I remember when the suggestion was made to build one big house and tear down the little house. I was like, yeah, let's do that. But when those helicopters started flying over, they were like, oh shit, they got barracks. So yeah, it became. But, you know, okay, so so the guys move in next door. I thought it was hilarious the story you told about when y'all brought him pizza, and the the guy just reached out and was like, "My girlfriend's here," and grabbed the pizza and like wouldn't let y'all see inside. You didn't even see his face; you just saw a hand pop out. Yeah, yeah, they did not want us there. <laughs> they wanted. It's funny. Because they made, you know, like I remember the first night after they moved in, it was so obvious. They went out and they set up a target and they shot at the target. Mm -hmm. As if to say, we're here and we like guns. You know, they they were trying to plant seeds to make contact with us. Right. The whole thing was so, you know, these guys move in, they have very nice vehicles. They're not moving in any furniture, but they're moving in cases. It looked like they hold electronic equipment. Mm-hmm. That's what they're. And then they're claiming, you know, when we finally do meet them, they claim that they're ranchers going to TSTC, which is the typical uh, trade college here in Waco. I had a and, friend that uh, graduated there. Yeah. Well, you know, and you have to claiming that they're studying philosophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at a technical, at a trade college. <laughs> That's where my buddy learned how to be a welder. <laughs> With the philosophy of welding? <laughs> yeah. Jeez. That's, that's what the main guy said. I'm the Nietzsche of welding. It's just, you know, scales <laughs> grow taller on down the line. Yeah. You know, it's just, it was obvious. But where Steve and Wayne were really kind of upset about it, they were like, we got to find out where, where these cars registered to. You know, we got to. And David's like, it doesn't matter who they are. CIA, FBI, who cares? Mm-hmm. I have a truth to present. And I'm going to present it. That was his attitude. Right. You know, if this guy is working with the government. Maybe I can show him the seven seals. He'll see that we're just studying the Bible and that's the work with the people and see that there's no illegal activity and we'll drop his case. That was David's way of looking at it. That was his philosophy. Now, uh, were all four of them, <laughs> were all four of them interacting with y'all or was it just Robert Rodriguez? Pretty much just Robert Rodriguez, maybe another guy, but it always seemed like when he brought someone over, the other guy just didn't say anything. I, you know, they weren't very good undercover guys. Yeah, yeah. It, well, and and I found it interesting that that David, David, and Robert actually built some sort of bond together. Um, it seemed it did seem that way. Uh, was, Robert denied. 
was it in, in was it in testimony oh no it was an interview um in the washington times i think it was um dallas, probably dallas morning news i read a really interesting article with robert the dallas morning news once oh is that what it was probably we're probably where, yeah where, where he was he was referencing that he was close to actually joining the yeah yeah, yeah. so the, that, i, I I think the the journalist said, "Was he re, was he reaching you? Was he getting to you? Were you close?" And Robert said, "Yeah, I was close." Yeah, that was very interesting, a very telling. Um, the other thing that he said that was really interesting too, he said that he would go over to talk to David and get a study or two, and he would come back, and his fellow agents would have to like shake him up and say, "Listen, you're not here to get converted. You're here to do a job." Right, and he started asking questions. Well, what about this? What about that? What are you know? This guy says this about. They're like, dude, you're not here to get converted. You're here to do a job, so stop. Mm -hmm. But David definitely had him thinking. David definitely had planted a seed in there, <laughs> and you know, I think Robert was convicted. I think he had a conviction that David really had something. You know, and it's it's funny. You can even look back to Pontius Pontius Pilate, who wanted to basically wash his hands of the whole thing he's like you know <clears throat> what he's or they're getting ready to, to, to crucify as Yeshua Jesus and he says you know I find no fault in this man we should release him and they're like no crucify him crucify him so you know it's it's interesting it's that conviction of knowing this guy is not guilty of anything and you want me to kill him and that's my job now I have to kill him because you're all telling me I have to kill him and I represent the people. That's, you know, it's, it's interesting. Interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Well, and <clears throat> y'all found out it was what, about 45 minutes before the initial attack began that y'all found out that, that something was going on. And, and Robert Rodriguez, I guess had been there that day. And David had said something to him about, I know this is happening. And so really? he tried to really? call it, he tried to call it off. Didn't he? He did. He did. He was there talking to David um, in the morning and they were talking about the, the first installment of the uh, sinful Messiah series, the Waco Tribune Herald. They've done a bang up job. The Waco Tribune Herald, they play a big part in getting everyone killed. All their articles that they they did, but they had this come out before the the, the the raid, and so David was you know. Robert wanted to get David's reaction to the article. That's why he went over that, but he had been over every morning, so I didn't think too much of it. And then what happened is someone came in. Uh, David Jones, Heather and Kevin Jones's dad came in. There were two kids that were living there came in while he was talking to Robert and said, listen, uh, I got to talk to you, David. And they went in the other room and he said, I was just stopped by some ATF guys asking, some camera guys asking where Mount Carmel was. They said, something's going down. So, you know, Mr. Dave Jones knew that something was going to happen and told David, who then went back and talked to Robert and said, well, we know they're coming, Robert. Good luck. And Robert left and went back across the street. You know, David said something like, you know, you know us, you know who we are, you know the kind of people we are. Um, you should tell your people to call this off. We know, you know, we know. So good luck. And Robert got in the car and his truck and drove away. 
you try to get them to stop to not go forward with the lit to, with the rain to let them know that you know that crash knew they were coming they went forward with it anyway seriously just mistake after mistake just arrogant bad decision after arrogant bad decision that just got so many people killed so freaking needless well yeah and that was one of the points that byron sage was sticking by in his interview was that y'all had planned for this and y'all were ready for this and y'all had you know snipers and 40 positions and you know they all, i was like i was like no dude <laughs> there there wasn't 40 positions <laughs> you can look at you can look at the front of the house and, and look at it and go yeah they didn't have 40 positions set up like that just wasn't that's not what happened and the test go ahead you weren't done i apologize no no that's okay i i just i just found it funny that they they so blatantly continue with this lie that y'all were ambushing them when it was very easy and and here were there were you know i've always heard people point out the the cattle trucks right there with just the tarp over the top excuse me um the cattle trucks that just had the tarp over the top and how easy it would have been to take out the ATF before they even got off the cattle trucks. Well, yeah, but then there was also the, the point of view that they, they ran out of ammunition later that day and said, okay, we'll leave, cease fire, and y'all stop firing it. When y'all could have easily just said, eh, whatever, I don't care if you're out of ammunition or not. We got plenty. Right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the point is, again, the whole thing's totally avoidable. Mistake after mistake after mistake. Cover up, they lie about it, and they get raises and promotions. I, it, really, it just, it, it's, it just absolutely blows my mind. They shot indiscriminately at women and children for so 45 minutes. And, you know, it's true. If there, it wasn't an ambush. We all know that. Mm. The trials, it was indicated by several of the ATF guys on the ground that the first shots they believed were from the dogs being shot. Mm. Well, guess what? You got a team going shooting people's dogs right away. What the hell you think's going to happen? You know, ask any dog owner. If there's someone comes in and shoots your dog, what are you going to do about it? You're yeah. not going to sit there and fucking take it. That's, that's what you, you keep seeing me jack around over here on the side. That's my pit bull that rides with me in my truck wanting attention because I'm talking. <laughs> so he thinks that he deserves the attention. Don't go, don't come around here and try to shoot my dog. <laughs> it's crazy, and then you know, it, it just goes on and on and on. All forty five minutes, just indiscriminately, and they were ambushed. Really, they mm. were ambushed. You know, not one. Uh, the death toll would have been horrific if that were the case. Right. Never, never was the case. Nobody <clears throat> wanted to shoot anybody. We didn't want them to come in and shoot at us. They shot at us first and they continued to shoot at us. You know, some people defended their positions. That's it. Big yeah, that's what you do. I mean, it's fucking American policy, man. You don't come in and shoot at someone in their house and not expect them to defend themselves. It's that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. You know, and then listen, the helicopters were coming in the back, everyone. Who saw the helicopters, especially Kevin Whitecliffs, and the helicopters were shooting. So, you know, there are people that still deny the helicopters were shooting because the government's always said they had. The government's lying to you. Well, I don't, you know, if you're going by the Danforth report 
but you think the helicopters didn't shoot you you're, you are deceived well li- listen to the just listen to the phone call with um the negotiator uh what's his name jim and 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 david uh calls him a fucking liar right yeah. he's like you're a damn liar because we yeah. know that they had guns and we know they were oh I, well actually what i was saying is they didn't have mounted guns there were no mounted guns shooting at you you know like he he quickly changes a story when he gets called out for lying i mean it, it it was blatantly obvious that they were trying to polish over all the things that they were doing yes they are liars and they are they're, liars and they're trying to make y'all accountable for it so uh, we're we're running up on an hour and i told you i wouldn't keep you any longer than an hour run us through the the april 19th run us through from your point of view your position hey, well, what happened do you have any specific questions about april 19th not really i, I kind of always wanted just to hear your story like what it actually you experienced yeah, well, you know, early in the morning, the <clears throat> loudspeakers came on and they said that they were going to start putting in gas. They were going to start tear gassing us. And that the siege was over. We're all under arrest come out with our hands up. And then, you know, the popping started. Uh, Steve Schneider, that's something I want to address. Steve Schneider went up and down the hall saying, everyone go get your gas masks, get your, get your masks. And something that Byron said in the interview, in his interview, was that after Steve said, get your mask, he said, start pouring fuel, pour some fuel. That was never said. I was there. I remember. I was in the hall next to Steve. I remember him running up and down going, everyone get your masks. At no time ever did I hear him say, pour fuel, put fuel, light a fire. None of that shit was ever said to me or anywhere near me or in my presence. It did, it did not say it. And Byron Sage made it sound like right after Steve Schneider said, pour the, uh, uh, get your gas mask, that he said, pour fuel. That is, that's a crock. Mm-hmm. That did not happen. Now, the other thing that really makes me crazy about this, and all that takes a little bit of conductive reasoning, the FBI all say that at 6 a.m., they have audio tapes of, of, of people pouring fuel, of Thresh telling people to pour fuel, or Steve telling people to pour fuel at 6 a.m. The fire starts at 12 noon. The FBI claimed that Koresh gave the order to start a fire at 6 a.m. What's the problem with this? Fire doesn't start until six hours later. So if Koresh gave the commandments or whatever you want to call it to start a fire at 6 a.m., how come no one started a fire at 6 a.m.? It took six hours for that magical fire to start. Yeah doesn't make any sense man doesn't make any sense the only tape that i've ever heard that was somewhat clear was a tape of people saying what sounded like to me is cut the power now they played this for me at the grand jury they had me read off a piece of paper and the people said light the fire and three times i listened to it without reading the paper and i heard cut the power and then i opened my eyes to, to read what they wanted me to to believe was being said there they said it said on the paper said light the fire said that is not what he's saying they're saying cut the power and so and you know the grand jury was like yeah they didn't couldn't believe that i couldn't hear it but to me it was very plain right so i think if you play an audio and then you show them the dialogue you want to see that many people because they're seeing the dialogue will think that's what's being said but that that, that's not the truth in that case 
Now, the FBI claims there's some other magical audio that I've never heard before where they're clearly saying, pour fuel, start a fire. Never heard it. Never seen it. I don't believe it. Yeah. Not what I experienced. It's not what anyone said. The be- <clears throat> At around 10.30, they, you know, they were gassing us through the entire morning. And then when they ran out of ferret rounds, the tank started to come through the building. And, of course, you could hear the building scraping. I went to the second, I went on the, I was on the first floor. I went to the hallway and I looked down the hallway to the, the hallway that led to the cafe, to the cafeteria area and it was destroyed. I mean, the tanks had already come through, made huge holes. The, the floorboards were all over the place. You couldn't get down that hallway. There's too much debris. And then it was blocked off. Right. And so, you know, I knew there was no, there was just no way to have any access to the rest of the building. It was cut off after the tank started. Yeah. They, I mean, you watch the you can watch the video if you watch waco rules of engagement they show a lot of the video of of the tanks pushing in um the walls and and you had made a comment about how terrifying it was to be standing at your front door and then it just comes flying in at you yeah and i i thought that was really really interesting that yeah, I mean, you were right there having to jump out of the way as the tanks coming through your front door and pushing your front door through your living room. Yeah, it's something you never forget, man. That's for sure. When you get a duck back away from a tank coming through your front door, yeah. it's just crazy. I just, I wish, I wish there was a, the, I wish there was a way my brain could have recorded that so we could have put put that video to VHS so people could actually see physically what that was like right. as it was really it was absolutely terrifying you, know, you, just, you thought you were dead and is that is that when you lost contact with the children like you could no longer get to the children from that point oh yeah definitely i was around 10 a.m 10 30 and uh, yeah. at, at what point did you go to the the catwalk and and try to get across the catwalk very end right around i guess uh 1204 or 5 Someone yelled from the upstairs, there's a fire up here. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that I couldn't get to th- there through the first floor. So I tried to get up to the second floor. And I, of course, wanted to see if a serenity had been put into the underground bus. And so I figured, you know, I went over the catwalk to where the second store hallway was. Mm-hmm. And there was a blanket that was over the doorway. And so I went to open the blanket. And a big gust of smoke came in at me. And I remember I had to move back to avoid being hit in the face of the smoke. And then as the smoke dissipated, I went to go back into the hallway and it just this wall of flame shot down in front of me. It went down the entire, it was incredibly loud. It made this whoosh, very loud. I could just see the flame go, you know, in front of my face. And I just knew, you know, there was no way I'd get in that hallway. I was already uh, consumed with flame. Right. So that was it. I went back downstairs to behind the chapel area. There's a little kind of catwalk back, a little walkway back there. And that's where, you know, Wayne Martin was, Wade Martin Jr., uh, Clive Doyle, Derek Lovelock, Jamie Casillo. Uh, I think uh, Mr. Friesen was there. Uh, a bunch of different people. And, you know, the, the, the four people that came out of that, that wall was, was, was Jamie Casillo, myself, Derek Lovelock, and uh, Clive Doyle. Clive came out last. Mm-hmm. We didn't think anyone would be able to make it out after me because... I left when I heard my hair crackle, mm-hmm. the side of my head. That you know, I was leaning against the wall, and the wall was catching fire. And I, I just knew I was a goner. 
I turned around, I looked at Wayne Martin, who had taken his gas mask off, and he had his back against the wall, and he slid down the wall as smoke enveloped him. I couldn't see him anymore. And so I went out, I went to the hole, and it's like, Jamie went out, Derek went out, and I'm like, well, better to be shot than to burn to death, is my attitude. Mm. So I went out through that hole. I remember it was, it was muddy for some reason, which I still won't. I don't know if that was the fuel that they had poured out a few days before from that area or not, but it was muddy there and my shoes got caught and I had to pull them out. And then I saw the Red Cross sign and the, the, uh, the big speakers were saying to watch the Red Cross sign. So I started to walk that way. I could see, you know, Jamie in front of me and uh, started walking up that way. I turned around in time to see Clive Dole come out. And he was patting his arms out. His arms were smoking. Right. I didn't think anyone was going to make it out past me. So I was happy to see Clive. Uh, but I knew that he was probably hurting. It looked like, you know, he was on fire. And so I continued. That's where everything went into like the tunnel vision, you know, the shock took over everything. I was in this, like, I could literally just see like the blindfold just on directly in front of me. Saw the Red Cross sign, went about halfway out, about 50 yards, turned around in time to see that giant explosion. And the giant explosion was so powerful, I could feel the heat of the fireball from about 50 yards out, about halfway between the Red Cross side and the building. Right. That's how powerful that was. I could feel the blast of the heat from it. And so we got to the where the Red Cross sign was, and there was two big burly FBI guys. One and a, and a dark-haired guy. One had a gun, you know, a, a rifle. <clears throat> the other had a notepad. They put us on our face, lined us up, put uh, plastic handcuffs around our hands at the back. And basically, they just started to just say, okay, where are the kids? You got to live with this for the rest of your life. Where are the children? I said, the children should be on the underground bus. You guys know all about it. I would go to the bus. And the FBI looked at the other FBI again, and the other guy said, oh, we tear gas that bus. And I just looked at him like, you tear gas that bus. Okay, well, that's their avenue of escape, and he tear gas. And it was crazy. I was like, uh, the, the, the one FBI guy looked at the other, he said, I knew this wasn't going to work, and you should have gone to, we should have gone to plan A, or, or plan B. He said, what are the, we should have gone to the other plan, is what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And then he said, do you think they started the fire? And the one guy said to the other guy, and the guy said, you're damn right they started their fire. There wasn't one effing pyrotechnic in that building. See, that always said, I always thought about that. Him saying that the way he said it, he believed that there were no pyrotechnics used. And that's part of the problem, I think. And when I think of Byron Sage, it makes me wonder. Is Byron Sage an upright liar? Because I believe he lied to Janet Reno when he said we're at an impasse and they're not coming out. We had just made a plan with them for David Crest to write the 17 manuscript and then everyone was coming in. Mm -hmm. So they weren't at an impasse. There was a plan. We had a plan in place. It wasn't an impasse. But yet, he didn't tell that to Reno, and I wonder why. But the fact that that agent on the ground could believe that there were no pyrotechnic devices indicate to me that the people on the ground had no fucking idea what was happening. Many of them didn't. Yeah. But I think it was somebody in a much higher position 
used pyrotechnics in that building. They were found in the evidence locker. They were mislabeled as silencers. There were six or seven pyrotechnic devices that were found in the rubble. So the FBI used pyrotechnic devices. They lied about it for three years. It finally came out that the pyrotechnic devices were in the building, were found in the building, or in, you know, and so that's the FBI. They used pyrotechnic devices in the building. They can say whatever they want. They that they can say we started the fire. They can say it started three times, three places at the same time. They can say whatever they want, but they used pyrotechnics in that building. And I want everyone to think about this because they fucking lied about it for three years. Well, they lied it, everyone it, about it for three years, and they they only admitted it when they got caught. It it wasn't only that there. They, they did use pyrotechnics and it's very obvious and it did come out in evidence, but not only that y'all were accused of having grenades. So they, I mean, they either, they weren't sharing information properly on the warrant or everybody knew the warrant was bunk and didn't bother even sharing the information that was in the warrant. You know what I'm saying? So, so either, either way, these field agents that are sitting there on the ground didn't even know that there was a possibility of explosions. You know, they had no idea what was going on as even as far as their own warrant was concerned. Yeah. I got you. So, well, Hey, you know, Anybody that hasn't heard your entire story, you, you wrote a gr great book called Waco, um, a survivor story that they should go pick up. Everybody should go get that book. Anything else you got to plug? Well, not, not really plug. I mean, the, the, the memorial, April 19th, the 28th year memorial is coming up. We're doing it online, Zoom. Mm -hmm. And basically, uh, the only way to get in on it is you have to email us your email address and then we'll forward a link. We're not doing an open link because of the, the Zoom bombing and stuff like that. You know, right. we don't want undesirables. Well, I know Beatrix uh, Beatrix will be um, sitting in on it again this year. She sat in, in on it last year. Well, if you're interested, you can friend me on Facebook and ask for a link. Yeah, uh, either that or they can email me and or, and and I'll get them a link. But you know, so yeah, and we'll, we'll make to, sure anybody who wants to be involved in that can be involved in that. Great, thanks. Also, you know, there's uh, my website, uh, wakelsurvivors.com. Uh, you could send an email to me personally through that. Uh, it's David at wakelsurvivors.com. But the uh, there's a lot of great information on Waco survivors. I got uh, most of the 911 tapes, we got a lot of, I got all of the transcripts of the negotiations uh, for the 51 days i have um audio of some of the negotiations most of the negotiations there's audio of david Kresh giving sermons in the 80s and some of david Kresh's music uh stuart wright's writings who really does an amazing critical analysis of, of what the government and the fbi did at mount carmel he's a stuart wright's a professor at, at beaumont texas brilliant guy i just love i love right stuart. down the road from me uh, yeah, nice. He's done. Yeah, that's right. It is. Uh, we talked about that. I talked about that when I talked to Beatrix. We talked about <laughs> he, he did some great work there, man. Um, all that stuff's on my website. I got a lot of, ton of great free stuff on the website. But anyone Waco, WacoSurvivors.com. I'll make yeah, sure I'll link, I'll link to that. 
any books that are bought off the website are signed by me personally. Awesome. So, well, thanks, that's man. awesome, man. No, thank you, man. And I'm I'm glad we got to got to just chat a little bit as well. You know, I mean, I know you get on these calls and it's all like, okay, tell me every little detail. And it's like, uh, let's just relax and have a conversation, you know. <laughs> So six part series. <laughs> <laughs> there is a six part series. Is it still on Netflix? No, it's off. Netflix. Is it off of Netflix? Where can they, is, is that for sale at uh, Waco survivors.com? No, it isn't. <laughs> um, the documentaries are uh, there. I guess I can let your audience sit on this. They're doing a second season and the second season is going to be about, you know, uh, Vernon becoming David and then some of the stuff that happened during the trials, and how just crazy all that was, the amount of evidence that was not shown to the jury. There's mm. so much there. But yeah, Paramount Networks is working on the second season of Waco, which is nice. Yeah. Hell yeah. I enjoyed the first one. I was a, it was funny sitting there with Beatrix watching it because she's like, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. That's not how that happened. <laughs> if you're literate, you've read the book, you'll notice quite a few differences. She was like, she, she was like, they, they are messing up my friend's story. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, I can't be too bad. But they humanize the people. Yeah. And like I said, if you want to know what really happened, read the book. Yep. There you go. Bond yourself some discipline. Sit down a half hour a night and well, knock it out in a couple of weeks. Yep. It's a good book too. It's well written. I try to get people to read. You know, I mean, I I, I am one who likes to learn from watching uh, the Science Channel and things like that. But you know, I, I have a short attention span, so I have to really discipline discipline myself to read. But I try to read something every day. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I I will tell you as somebody who loves to write and loves to read, it's well well written. It is easy to read. I sat down with it one night and uh actually it was one morning before i came to work and i was like well let's see what we're looking at here let's see how this was written and i read the first three chapters in probably 45 minutes i mean i just flew through it so yeah so well well written it's very easy to read and it keeps you it keeps you intrigued see spot run spot run fast (laughs) (laughs) as long as it's not dr seuss hey I love Dr. Stewart. <laughs> All right, Bubba, I'm going to stop the recording. Now. You want to be a hero, said you're just a slave. All your good intentions took you to your grave. Your pride is how they killed you. With the flag you wave just like a fool. They promised you a mountain, gifted you a stone. They demanded that you throw it into your neighbor's home and then seize all that they worked for. And give it to the throne just like a tool. As we all just stand in line and glorify new ways of being cool. Seems to me you're.
something that they're teaching us in school. They dumps down all around propaganda, their pollution. They set a cage up on the stage, up a side for a solution. They build a wall, block them all from this mental institution. It's insane. These crimes done in our names Seems to me authority and tyranny Are both one and the same Till our right to freedom is understood.